Many years ago, a hymn writer named Charles Wycliffe penned the following words. There's a name above all others, wonderful to hear, bringing hope and cheer. It's the lovely name of Jesus. Evermore the same, what a lovely name. The chorus says, what a lovely name, the name of Jesus. Reaching higher far than the brightest star, sweeter than the songs they sing in heaven. Let the world proclaim, what a lovely name. Today we're going to look at a passage that explains to us why the name of Jesus is such a lovely name. Open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Verse 26 is where we're going to start at. And that is on page 779 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'll ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can these things be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the high shall overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One, who is born to you, will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with nothing, or for with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The title of the message this morning is The Name of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. God, we praise you and we worship you for all that you've given us and for all that you've done. We are grateful, Lord, for this day and the opportunity we have to sing your praise, to study your word, just to gather with other believers and, and enjoy the fellowship of the saints. Father, we thank you for this season and what it represents. We thank you for caring about us enough to send your son to come and to live on this earth in a way that we could not live and to die on the cross in a way that we would not have to die. We thank you, Father, for the grace and the mercy that he extends to us. We thank you, God, for just all the many wonderful, wonderful things that you have given us in our lives. We ask you today, as we look at your word, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive it. Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace what you have revealed to us about Jesus in this passage. Help us, God, if we look at a familiar passage that talks to us about the names of Christ and what these things mean to us in our lives, that we would think deeply about them, we would embrace them in our lives, and it would change us. Help what happens here today to make us different tomorrow as we go out. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit as I speak your word, that I would not be a hindrance in any way to what you want spoken. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, and, and use me, Father, for your glory to help your people to be lights that shine for you. We love you and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Which may be seated. And the announcement to Mary sets up a parallel to the birth of John the Baptist and mirrors a number of birth announcements from the Old Testament. But this passage's mood is very different than the one uh, where Zechariah was told about his son John the Baptist. Simple calmness rules the exchange between Mary and Gabriel. 
where Zechariah was in the midst of activity before a whole nation and its religious center, this announcement comes to the future mother privately, sort of what we would not think of as in the country. And then the, the theme that I'm focusing on in this message on the name of Christ begins in verse 31 and goes through verse 33 where it talks about Jesus being great, the son of the highest, the, given the, the throne of his father David, he'll reign forever and ever. And in these passages, we're given these various names and titles for Jesus. And each of the names and titles, it reveals something to us about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so I, I based my main idea off of that. And the main idea, if you take taking notes, is that the names of Christ reveal the identity of Christ. The names of Christ reveal the identity of Christ. And the identity of Christ is revealed in three ways in this passage. First, Jesus is the Son of God. We're told in verse 32 that it would be great and it would be called the Son of the Highest. If you drop down to verse 35, it talks about the, the Holy Spirit would come upon her. The power of the Highest would overshadow her. Therefore, also the Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. Uh, Jesus was called here the, the Son of the Highest, the, the Son of God. And while Jesus would come into the world through basically normal birthing process like any other baby he would not actually be like any other baby because he was the eternal son of god if we were to look at john chapter one we would see that jesus be reminded of the fact that jesus did not come into existence one night in bethlehem jesus existed in eternity past with god and would now come down and take human form that's who jesus is he is god in the flesh and one of the chief claims about Christianity is that Jesus was not just a guy, that Jesus was not just a teacher, that he was, in fact, God in the flesh. One theologian said it this way, Orthodox Christianity claims that Jesus of Nazareth was God in human flesh. This doctrine is absolutely essential to true Christianity. If it is true, then Christianity is unique and authoritative. If not, then Christianity does not differ from, in any kind from other religions. Right? This is part of the reason we talk about Jesus being born of a virgin. We kind of emphasize that. But the, the virgin birth is somewhat significant for the deity of Christ. Those two are so intertwined that I, I don't think one could exist without the other. Uh, if Jesus had not been born of a virgin, then he was not God in the flesh. And Jesus were not God in the flesh, and there's no way he could have been born of a virgin. Jesus is God. And I know that you're familiar with this, but it's always good to be reminded of these things because we live in a day where the idea of Jesus being God is being attacked more and more. And sadly, these attacks, they don't necessarily come from the secular world. Right? These aren't necessarily attacks coming from the atheists out there who seek to discredit Christianity and to diminish its influence. More and more, the attacks about Jesus not being God are coming from within the church. They're coming from people who profess to be Christians themselves, who would call themselves Bible scholars and theologians. And what they would say is, well, Jesus, he never made these sort of claims about himself. Jesus, as he walked on the earth and as he lived and taught, he never exalted himself as someone who was God. Those claims that Jesus did not say he was God are utterly false. The Bible repeatedly shows us that Jesus claimed to be equal with God. And those who heard Jesus make these claims understood what he was saying. Right In John chapter 14 and verse 9, Jesus says, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say 
show us the Father. That's a pretty bold claim. To see me is to see God. Right? He's saying that, that I and my Father are one. Right? That, that I am the same. If you have seen me and if you have known me, you have known God. In John 10 and 30, he, he does say, I and my Father are one. And one of the reasons I love John 10 and 30 is because of verse 31 through 33. Jesus was talking to people at the time. This wasn't just randomly walking along speaking. He was talking to people and he said, I and my father are one. And listen to how they responded. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Why were they going to stone him? Jesus asked the same question. Many good works have I shown you from my father. Which of those works do you stone me? The Jews said, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. You, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. Those who heard Jesus clearly understood what he was claiming. In some instances, it angered them to the point that they wanted to kill him for it. More instances could be shown. The whole sermon could be taken up on talking about Jesus being God. But I just want to use a small sampling to demonstrate Jesus that he did claim to be God. And the reason it's important to understand that Jesus claim to be God is because it forces us to make a decision about Jesus. And it forces us to choose who he is. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about our response to Jesus' claims. He said, I'm here trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That, Lewis said, is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, one on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Did not intend to. Jesus made amazing claims about himself. His claims are attested to. In the Gospels, they are attested to by those who followed him, who also made those claims about him. We have to choose then, who do we think that Jesus is? Saying he is a good man, a good teacher, wouldn't make sense. I mean, if I were to say, I was God in the flesh and I was the second incarnation of Jesus, would you, still, would you say, well, I disagree with Stacy about him being Jesus, but I still think he's overall a pretty good teacher. I think he's a good guy and a good example. We can learn a lot from him. He's just wrong in that area. Or would you say he's a nut job? Obviously, he's you know lost his mind a bit. But you wouldn't take someone who made such wild claims and embrace them as a good person while, he, while, the, while rejecting their claims of deity. If we are going to decide about Jesus, we must choose. And I like the way Lewis lays it out. He is a liar. He is a lunatic. He is Lord. We must all choose one of those three. The clear teaching of Scripture, the name that Jesus has given, it identifies Him and it reveals Him 
to be the Son of God, God in the flesh. Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus is also the Savior of the world. In verse 32, verse 31, it says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, the name Jesus had a very specific meaning. It meant Jehovah is salvation. And in the Matthew account that I read at the start of service, we're told that he was given that name because he came to save people from their sins. But Jesus came to be a savior. He came to save the world from their sins. Now, Jesus is unique in that he is the one and only savior. He is the only one. That can save us. And that claim that Jesus alone saves, that is one of the reasons Christianity is not really liked in our world. It would be acceptable to say that Jesus was a way. Jesus is my path to God, but you find your own path to God. Jesus was my instructor to show me how to live right, but you find your own path to find what is right, and that's okay too. The world would be fine if we would do that. The Bible doesn't leave that option open for us either. Jesus makes clear statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. Those that heard Jesus repeatedly made the same statements. They preached in the book of Acts that in Jesus, that there is salvation. And under no one else, under heaven and earth, there is no other name where salvation is found. They wrote in later letters saying that there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The the apostles heard Jesus claim to be the door and the way and the only way. And then they followed that up by preaching it and teaching it themselves. But there is a good question. Why? Why is Jesus the only way? Why is Jesus the only one who can offer salvation when no other can? Because, you know, in a lot of ways, a lot of religions are alike. Most religions promote some, some form of be good to your neighbor. Most religions promote so, some form of help those in need. Most religions try to help you to improve upon yourself and to, to suppress your base urges and your sinful nature. Why then, if religions are in so many ways similar, why is Jesus the only one who can legitimately save us? Legitimately save, become our Savior? Well, the answer to that is because Jesus is the only one who has dealt with man's problem of sin. Jesus is the only one who has dealt with man's real problem. Because our our problem isn't so much a lack of morals. Our problem isn't so much our our base urges. Our, Our problem isn't so much our greediness or our selfishness. Those are just symptoms of the larger problem. The larger problem is that we are depraved. We are sinners. We are by our nature rebellious against the rule and the reign of God. That is who we all are at our core. You know, we started this series on the coming cross by looking at Genesis 3 at the fall of Adam and Eve. And we saw there that when Adam and Eve sinned, that their nature, that rebellious sin nature was passed on to all of us. Now, We don't have to have the Bible to know that man is rebellious. Because we know that in and of ourselves. We know it in small ways. Right? Silly things. 
If there's a sign that says wet paint do not touch, what are the majority of us going to do? We're going to touch it, aren't we? Right? If, if a sign says do not walk on the grass, now maybe this isn't you. I've mentioned I have authority issues. But if a sign says do not walk on the grass, I'm at least going to put one foot on it just to show I can. Right? And I'm probably not the only one who wrestles with that. Right? That just the, the fact that if somebody tells me what to do, Oh, oh, I don't like that at all. You say, but weren't you in the army? It was a long, long time in the army. It was hard at times. But that rebellion against authority, that's not just the way we are. That's not just my personality. That is sin manifesting itself in the rejection of standards and rules. And it goes deeper than that. Right? Because anyone who will put their foot in the grass and touch the wet paint, will also see a sign from God that says, you shall not, and will do it themselves. They will do what they know God has said not to do. And you see, we're we're, we're what we might call double sinners. We're sinners by birth. We inherited Adam's nature. But we are also sinners by choice. The Bible said, all have sinned. Not just that that we have all inherited a sinful nature, but that we have willfully sinned. And the, the Bible also says that the wages of sin is death. There are consequences for our actions. Our rebellion against the rule and the reign of God in our life, it has legitimate consequences now and more severely in eternity. You say, but I don't feel like I'm a guilty sinner. I mean, I feel that basically I'm a good person. Well, that's why we have to identify what sin is. That's why we have to, to have a standard. Something that, that absolutely declares right from wrong. Something that is absolutely for all time the plumb line, the dividing line between sin and righteousness. 1 John 3, 4 tells us what that is. It says that sin is a transgression of God's law. That's it. See, God has an absolute standard of righteousness. God has an absolute standard of right and wrong, and it would be the Ten Commandments. And if we were to take the time and go to Exodus 20 and look at the Ten Commandments and think of them in light of the the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, we would find that we have all sinned. Now, let me explain the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The letter of the law is what it specifically says. The spirit of the law is what it was intended to convey. Now, let me give you an example. A friend of mine, his sons were, had a friend stand over, and they kept going outside late at night, and it was, everybody was in bed. It was like 2 in the morning, so he told them. Put them in the room, and he said, I don't want you to go outside this door again. Later, he woke up, and they were outside playing, and he went out to get on to them, and they said, we didn't go through the door, Dad. We took the screen off the window and climbed out the window, right? They had obeyed the letter of the law. They had not gone out the door. What was the spirit of the law? Stay in your room, and they had violated that. The Ten Commandments have the same thing. There is the letter of the law. She'll have no other gods before me. Well, the letter of the law is don't worship another god. Right? So if you just look at the letter of the law, you could say, well, I've never worshipped Baal or Ashtra or Allah or Buddha or anything like that. I'm, I'm good to go. Ah, but the spirit of the law, that's, that's what gets us a lot of the times. Right? Because the spirit of the law 
is that, that God would be first in our lives. That there would not ever be anything in our lives that, that was more important to us than God was. And this couldn't be just something that we said, no, God is first. It would have to be something that was lived out in our lives. Right? And for us to have kept this law, that means that, that God must have been the primary motivation for everything I did. Every thought that I had, every word that I spoke, every action I took, all of my life. Right from the, the time I was born, and I have to keep it on until the time I die. I had to have always perfectly done the will and the one of God. Right, so if you're here and you say, well, I've never worshipped Baal or Ma'ala or anything like that. You may have kept the letter of the law, but what about the spirit? Have you ever known what God said to do and then chose to do something else? Have you ever known what God's will was and determined to do your will instead? Then you have put something ahead of God. Largely, the God that is ahead of God most of all is ourselves. We choose to do our will and our want over the will of God. We have violated that law and we are sinners. Another example would be, do not murder. You shall not murder. Well, again, it's a pretty easy one. I ain't never killed nobody. I'm good to go. What's the spirit of the law? Well, Jesus explained the spirit of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. It's to be angry without cause. So he said, if you're angry without cause, if you call somebody a fool, or if you say raka to them. Now, angry without cause means that there's no righteous reason to be angry. You know, the Bible doesn't necessarily say that, that anger is always sinful. The Bible says be angry and sin not. And at times, there is a righteous anger that there should be. Nehemiah got angry righteously. Jesus cleared the temple by turning over tables and chasing people with whips. He was angry, righteously. There is also an unrighteous anger. An anger that is not justified. An anger that is not based in the character of God or the will of God. Right? So if you have ever been angry for a reason that really isn't a legitimate reason, and thought hateful thoughts or said hateful things. You have violated the spirit of that law. Right? And as much as I want it to be, 20 items in the 10 item or less line, it's not a righteous reason. Being cut off in traffic, not a righteous reason. Right? Then he said to call them you fool. Now a fool was someone who, we think of it as someone who's mindless. But in the Old Testament, a fool was basically someone who did not believe in God. A fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Right? So to call someone a fool was to condemn them. It was a condemning statement. You're going to hell. I hope you go to hell. Right? If you have ever, in your anger, condemned someone to hell, you have violated standard. You have violated the spirit, the law against murder. Now, Raka. How many of you have ever said rocket to somebody in your life? Ha, never have. Because we don't use that word. You know what it was? It was a contemptuous statement. Uh, one guy I talked to said that, that in the Jewish culture, that if I said rocket to you, what I just communicated to you was I was about to spit in your face. I thought so little of you. <laughs> right? So, I mean, have you ever been spit on by somebody? That's a pretty... I mean, if somebody just angrily spits on you, that's a, that's a pretty bad deal right there, isn't it? I mean, I'd rather you call me a name and spit on me. That, that's bad. I mean, that's how little you think of someone. So, to call someone raka, say raka to them, was to speak contemptuously to them. 
So you ever spoken contemptuously to someone or about them? Belittled them, mocked them, made them feel stupid, made them look stupid, made them appear stupid to another? You have violated the spirit of the law against murder. And you're a sinner. And if we were to go to Exodus 20 and look at all ten, we'd find the same thing. We'd find that we have taken God's name in vain in one way or another. We've stolen in one way or another. We have failed to keep the Sabbath holy in one way or another. We have dishonored our parents. We have coveted what was not ours. We have violated the standards of God. And so we are guilty. We are sinners. And as such, we deserve the wages of sin. And that is death. That's not what God wants for us. God's desire for the people of earth is so much more than for them to live separated from him in this life and to suffer judgment in the life to come. God's desire is that we would know him now and live with him forever. And so Jesus came. And he came born of a virgin, so he was born without a sinful nature. And he lived on the earth and he he obeyed the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. He, He never Never broke it in the least little way. And despite his righteousness and despite his goodness, he was rejected by men, betrayed by one of his own, condemned wrongfully, and nailed to a cross. But the cross was the point of it all. That's the reason Jesus came. He didn't come to be the baby in the manger. He came to be the Savior on the cross. And on the cross... All of God's wrath against all of our sin was poured out upon Jesus. And he bore all the wrath, all of our sin, until he cried out, it is finished. At that point, Jesus gave up the ghost. He died, was buried. For three days, he lay in a tomb. But after the third day, he rose from the tomb, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And he now offers eternal life to all who would repent of their sins and believe on him for their salvation. Why is Jesus the only one who offers salvation? Because only Jesus has taken care of the penalty that our sins deserved. See, you and I, we can't take care of that penalty. Well, I mean, yes, we can. We can go through life rejecting Jesus and in eternity we can pay the penalty for our sins ourselves. Or we can turn from our sin and we can turn to Jesus and his righteousness can be accredited to our account and our sin can be accounted to the cross and we can be forgiven. Jesus is the savior of the world because Jesus and Jesus alone can deal with the ultimate problem we have, the problem of sin. The names of Jesus reveal the identity of Jesus and the name reveals he is the savior of the world. So Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And then finally, Jesus is the King of Kings. It says in verse 32 that he would be called great. He would be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He would reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there would be no end. See, the Messiah that was supposed to come would be a king. 
He would be a descendant of David. He would ascend to the throne of David and he would reign on that throne forever. That was part of what would make him different from all of the kings. Is that his, his kingdom would have no end. Uh, God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would give him an heir to the throne. David waited in all of his life and then his life went and it went on until it became Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9 Maybe verse 6, 7, and 8 or something like that calls Jesus the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. It says that, that he would be king, that of his kingdom or the government would be upon his shoulders and of his kingdom there would be no end. He would be the everlasting king, the ruler over all. Now, the idea of the Messiah being a king was very common. In the Old Testament. That's one of the reasons they misunderstood Jesus. They expected him to come the first time. As the king of kings. They expected him to come the first time as a warrior king. The thing is they, they kind of missed. That it would be two comings of the Messiah. I want us to look at a couple of passages today. That are one of my favorites about the king. The Messiah being the king. Turn to Psalm chapter 2. Page 425 in your pew Bibles. Psalm 2 is a prophecy of the coming Christ. It is what's called a messianic psalm because it tells us about Jesus and about his reign. Verse 1 through 3 shows us the fact that the rebellion against Christ is not new. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? Kings of the earth have set themselves, uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, which the word there is basically the word Christ, saying, Let us break the bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Right, so in verse 1, well, these verses we see a rebellion. In verse 1 you see the nations raging against the rule and the reign of of God and His anointed Christ. You see, the people plotting against the, the rule and the reign of God and His appointed Christ. You see a, a coalition of forces gathering together with the sole intent of breaking the bonds, casting away the cords. In other words, they're trying to throw off the rule and the reign of God and His anointed Christ. And so this is what the psalmist sees. This is like the world. The world rages against God. The world plots against his Christ. The world gathers together and looks for ways to, to remove the rule and the reign of God from their lives. Right? And, and the picture is that it's the world. Right? It's not like a nation. It's not a group of people. It is by and large the world. The nations are raging. The people of the earth are plotting. The kings of the earth, the powerful rulers of the earth are gathering together to find a way. Man, that would be... Scary. What is God's response? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. I love that. See, God's not, God's not concerned about the, the plotting of the people. God's not concerned about the raging of the nations. God's not worried about the coalition that's gathered to throw off his reign. He sees what they do. He knows what's going on. And he laughs. But it's not like he's laughing with them. He's laughing at them. It is 
uh, he holds them in derision. He is mocking them. He is laughing at them at the way a Navy SEAL would laugh when Justin Bieber said he was going to take him out. Right? That sort of... Yeah. Right? That's the picture there of how God views the rebellion of man. He's not concerned. Why? God's going to speak to them in His wrath, in His distress and deep displeasure, and say, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. What's God going to do? God's going to fulfill His plans. They're going to rage, and they're going to plot, and they're going to scheme. God's still going to do what he wants to do. God is still going to accomplish his will. God's plans are so sure that he speaks of future events in the past tense. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Because no one can alter God's plans. No one can alter the rule and the reign of God. God will reign. Jesus will rule in the world can plot. The world can rage. The world cannot do anything about it. He goes on in verse 7. He says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now the idea of ask and I will give it to you. It was a common thing. For someone who made a king, right? If someone that was a king of kings, to put someone else in a position of authority to say, I've made you here, now what is something you, I can give to you else? Right? And here, God is setting his anointed king as king. And he is saying, what do I want? I'll give you the nations. I'll give you it all. And it says that he would break them, the rod of iron, and shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, Who's being broken like a rod of iron? Who's being dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel? Well, it is the nations that are raging, the people that are plotting, and the kings that are scheming. He will take power, and he will judge the nations. And the picture there probably has to do with something that was common in the Egyptians. The Egyptians, when they would get ready to go to war, Pharaoh would set up clay pots as he was giving his, like, you know, rah-rah speech to the soldiers. He would set up clay pots that represented the, the armies that, and the nations they were going to fight. And then he would take the scepter that represented his power and he would crush them. Boom! 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 And as they broke to pieces, he would say, and as I have broke these pots to pieces, you shall break them, you know, whatever. And you will rule, and we will rule, and we will reign. Now, I know that's what it's a reference to and how it talks about the future reign and the judgment of Jesus because this passage is quoted in the book of Revelation. So turn to Revelation 19. I don't know what page it is. It's at the end of the Bible. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far. Revelation 19, we're going to start in verse 11. And this is like at the end of the tribulation period. And I can't go into everything that's happened up to this point, but it's been bad. And now is the culmination of it all. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, notice what he does. He, he judges. He makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire on his head. 
with many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. The armies of heaven clothed in fine linen and white and clean followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he would strike the nations. He himself would rule them with a rod of iron, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has a name on his robe, on his thigh, the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. See, at the end of the tribulation period, Jesus comes back. And he's not the suffering servant this time. He is not the, the gentle carpenter from Galilee. This time he is a warrior. And he is coming to conquer, to judge. He has, got, he has come with a sword out of his mouth to judge people according to the word of God. His robe stained with the blood of his enemies. He has come to smite them with a rod of iron and to tread the winepress of the fierceness, the wrath of Almighty God. In other words, he's come to ensure that the wrath of God is satisfied, that the judgment of God is completed. He comes to be the ruler. Then, chapter 20 talks about the, the millennial period and the thousand-year reign. And after the thousand-year reign in verse 7 of chapter 20, it said, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle as numbers as the sands of the sea. So another battle arises. And they went up the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven, heaven and devoured them. And so Satan rises up with a huge army. And again, Jesus conquers. Fire comes down and devours them. The devil who is deceived was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, whereas with the beast and the false prophet, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And in the picture here, in both of these images, of Jesus coming to conquer, not that he strains himself. So when he decides it's time, it's time. When he decides it's time to finish the, the wrath of God, he comes and he, he brings it. Nobody can stop him. And then when Satan arises with a great army, he just stops it. Fire falling from heaven. There is the judgment where all people stand before him in judgment. Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life go to heaven. Those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life are cast in the lake of fire, which is the second death. Chapter 21 it's the great picture of heaven where Jesus rules and reigns. And we look at this because it's important to understand that this, this one whose robes are dipped in blood and who comes to tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God is Jesus just as much as the one who says, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Jesus is a king. And he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And eventually he will reign over all things and over all people. And in that day, there will be two groups of people. And to put it bluntly, there will be those who are with him and those who are against him. Nobody gets to be Switzerland in this day. You're either on his side or you're one of the enemies. And he comes... And on this day, 
And on this day, there is no mercy. There is no grace. There is only judgment. And Jesus wins. In the end, He wins. The raging of the nations will not stop Jesus from reigning over all. The plots of the people will not stop Jesus from reigning over all. The plots against His reign will not stop Jesus from reigning over all. The nations always raged against God and His Christ. The people have always plotted against God and His Christ. The people have always sought to throw off His rule and His reign, and they will continue to do so to the end of time. But in the end, they will lose. No matter how mankind rebels, Jesus will ultimately win. The names and the titles of Jesus given in the announcement of His birth reveal His identity as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Let me close with the comments one preacher made on the name of Jesus. When we say His name, when we sing His name, when we breathe His name, when we shout His name, when we whisper His name, we proclaim the greatest name that has ever fallen upon the ears of humanity. We proclaim the name of the Savior of the lost, the shepherd of the sheep, the redeemer of the soul, the blessed bridegroom of the bride, the lover of men's souls, the glory of heaven, the one who calls himself our friend, the true and the living one. That's him. But he is so much more. In that precious name, the name of Jesus, there is hope, there is peace, there is love, there is salvation, there is blessing, there is healing, there is wonder, there is joy, there is glory, there is majesty. What a lovely name, the name of Jesus. At the mention of that name, hell trembles. Satan flees, sin is defeated, captives are delivered. Fear gives way to peace. Hopelessness is swallowed up in victory. The lost are found, the blind see, and the dead live. What a lovely name, the name of Jesus. That name marks the difference between heaven and hell, between life and death, between hope and despair, between sin and salvation, between judgment and forgiveness, between the grace of God and His condemnation. Thank God for that lovely name. Jesus bridges the gap between God and man, heaven and hell, sin and salvation. Many have shared that name, but there is only one, Jesus Christ, and He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords alone forever. Let's all stand as our musicians come forward.